Thank you for downloading this sermon from Heritage Baptist Church. We are so glad that you did. We believe that biblically faithful, Christ-centered, God-glorifying local churches are the primary means that God has chosen to expand His kingdom. If you are part of such a church, we hope that this message will supplement your spiritual diet. If you aren't yet part of such a church, we would love for you to visit us. For more details, please check out our website www.heritagebaptist.co.za Good morning church. It's for us to be together and good morning to all the children in the church as well. Um, if you received the sheet, uh, children, if you're anywhere from uh, 2 to 12 years old, you would have received the sheet at the door. And the word for the day is temple. The word for the day is the word temple. That's the word you'll be counting and thinking about today. Would you come with me in God's word to Acts chapter 6? We are going to finish the chapter today from where we picked it up, where we started it last week. Acts chapter 6 from verse 8. Well, actually, we're going to go to verse 14. We'll pick up verse 15 next week into chapter 7. Uh, verse 8 to verse 14. <clears throat> and Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and of the Cyrenians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Cilicia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and and the elders and the scribes. And they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, and the law for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us this is God's word the Apostle Paul in his famous letter to the Ephesians explains in chapter 6 that Christians are engaged in a war he explains that there is a war that is raging in which Christians are attacked, are being attacked, and they need to defend themselves using biblical war attire. And the first thing to note, the Apostle says, is that the war is not against flesh and blood. He makes that categorical claim, if you are familiar with Ephesians chapter 6. This is, of course, an unusual proposition. Human beings usually fight other human beings. But Paul, uh, all the wars that have been fought in history have been between people over fighting over ideologies and tribal superiority and money and many other things. But Paul wants us to have it in our minds that the war, the war that we are perpetually engaged in is not against other humans. Rather, Paul says in Ephesians 6, our fight is against the rulers against the authorities, 
against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. In other words, Paul says there is a realm unseen that we don't see with our eyes where our enemy is. The general of the army that is against us is the devil, and there are many captains under him, rulers, uh, powers, and there are many foot soldiers doing his bidding. The war in its entirety is spiritual. This is a truth that we must remember because while the war is unseen, it spills over into what is seen, spills over to what we can see. While people are not the enemy, they are used by the enemy in his purposes. While people themselves are not the enemy, the flesh and blood is not the enemy. However, the enemy does use people in his purposes. And the text in front of us this morning shows us how the spiritual battle in the spiritual realm spills over into the realm that we do see. The text in front of us not only ma- the, the text in front of us, sorry, only makes sense if there is a cosmic battle where sin and Satan are fighting against the purposes of Christ. The text does not make sense otherwise. The the actions of the opponents of Christ here are so overt, so ludicrous, and are such a copycat response to what we see God is doing that we must see the hand of the evil one behind them. I say this to you as we begin because much of the lesson this morning is that we must be aware of the reality of evil and its machinations. There is not much practical instruction here from this text other than Luke's primary purpose to show us that the powers of evil came out swinging once again in full force. They will not take the advance of the kingdom lying down. They are going to come at it and come at it in different ways. They're going to come against the gospel. And so as we here as the church, as Heritage Baptist, as we pursue to preach the gospel as a church, pursue to proclaim the light of Christ, we should expect devilish retaliation. As you, dear Christian, as you pursue a godly life with Christ as the banner over your face, you should also expect devilish fight back. Another important thing we need to consider before we get into this verse is the implication left hanging by verse 7. Let me read verse 7 for us, which we, we looked at last week, but perhaps not in, not in its entirety. And the word of God continued to increase, and the number of disciples multiplied greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. We left it last week after there was that division, and then the seven were, were appointed to deal with the division. And then after that, we are told that the gospel continued to increase. And then we are told this one line here, a great many of the priests became obedient to the faith. Why is this important for us to know? Why does Luke single out those priests for us to know? Because the priests are ministers in the Old Covenant. Priests are religious people who participate in the old system that God, was, that God was using to work on the earth. And at this stage in the life of the church, Jerusalem and the temple is getting real comfortable for the church. 
You see, they have a spot in Solomon's colonnade, you see. So in the temple building, they have their own section where they meet as a church. The, the, the ministry is growing. They are getting more and more comfortable. The Lord is doing wonderful works among them. And now, even some of the priests are among their number. Now, even some of the practitioners of the old covenant attached to the temple are part of their number. And so now it's getting very, this is very, it is getting quite comfortable for the church. There is no suggestion that these priests stop being priests. In fact, they continue being priests of the Old Covenant while being obedient to the New Covenant. It is wonderful that they are obedient to the, to, the, to the faith. It is a wonderful thing. But because the church is still attached to the temple, their ministry is in one locale. It is attached to one place. And that is not in line with what the Lord Jesus said would happen when he told them what will happen in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8. In verse 7, Luke gives us a picture of a healthy, thriving church in one location. And he now turns his attention to the second significant conflict that upsets this apple cart, this comfort that the church has. This this conflict is now going to upset the entire thing and the church is going to be scattered and go into new ground. With all of that said, let us get into our text this morning. First, in verse 8, Luke highlights the spectacular ministry of Stephen. Look at verse 8. Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Stephen here, whom we met last week, as he was the first of the seven, is described in terms so far only used of the apostles. He is full of grace. He is full of power from on high, and his ministry is an apostolic ministry. His ministry continues from the apostles. It's an apostolic ministry where he is doing great wonders and great signs among the people. A similar phrase, interesting enough, is used by John to describe the Lord Jesus in John chapter 1. John says the Lord Jesus was full of grace, grace and truth while he was among them. In the case of Stephen, we have a Hellenist, a man who is not a native of Israel in terms of culture and language, and and God is doing great miracles using him. His preaching, though he is an outsider, he is a Jew. Uh, There's nothing that suggests that he's not a Jew. In fact, his speech in chapter 7 tells us he is a Jew. He is a Jew, uh, but he's an outsider. He's an outsider to the, to, the, to the native, to the way that things work here. He's an outsider. He comes here every now and again. He doesn't belong here. He doesn't speak in the way that people speak here. But the Lord still confirms his preaching with great signs and wonders, confirming to the people that this Stephen is also preaching what I am saying. This, speak, this Stephen is speaking on behalf of myself. Something interesting to note here. After Stephen and the seven were appointed to the task of managing food for the widows, we never hear anything about the distribution of food again. After Stephen and the seven, remember that the whole reason we know Stephen is because Stephen was assigned, was, 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 was appointed by the church so that he can take care of this food distribution problem that was causing issues. And after he's appointed, Luke says nothing else about that work. He doesn't say how it went. 
He doesn't say whether it went badly or, or good. He doesn't say anything. He just moves on now to Stephen's powerful preaching ministry. That is significant. On the one hand, it is significant because Stephen and the seven clearly proved themselves to be trustworthy men. This problem that was a problem is no longer a problem anymore. The issue has disappeared. It's like you, if, you, if you have a, a pipe leaking at home and then you get your plumber, your plumber comes in, they fix it, he fixes it and leaves. If, if you have to speak to your plumber again next week, it means the job is not done. If you, if you have to speak to him again and keep speaking, you come and let's, let's talk about this issue again, it means the job is not done. Well, here the job was clearly done. The issue was taken care of. The seven were taking care of the issue in a wonderful way. And so Luke doesn't see a reason to bring it up again. But furthermore, this, this, there's, there's another hand to this. And the other hand to this is that this highlights the bigger, the greater work that God had in sight for the seven. And particularly here for Stephen. And in the, in the case of Stephen, his effectiveness, his power, his powerful ministry uh, incites the enemies of God to action. Look at verse 9. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freedmen, as it was called, and the Cyrenians and the Alexandrians and those from Cilicia and Asia rose up and disputed with Stephen, but they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Notice how Satan works to cause problems for the church. First, the enemies that are roused up here against Stephen are Hellenists like himself. You'll remember that in the last two episodes where persecution rose up in the church in, in Jerusalem, it was people like the it was people from around Jerusalem. The first time we saw persecution happening against the church, it was in chapter 4, and it was incited by the Sadducees who are from Jerusalem, who are from the, the land of Israel. And then, in chapter, we saw this again, I think it was chapter 5, it was again the same kind of movement from the people. From the, the Sadducees and the priests, it was, from, it was a local persecution. Now, the persecution is, is coming from outside. It's coming from Hellenists like Stephen. The synagogue of the freedmen is the assembly of freedmen from Rome, descendants of Jews enslaved by Pompey at his conquest of Judea in 63 BC. So these Jews that are these the synagogue of freedmen, these are freedmen who come from Jude, who come from, from Rome. This is a synagogue that is in Rome that's come here for the for the for the feast, and then they are now opposing Stephen. The Cyrenians are from Cyrene in modern-day Libya. The Alexandrians are from Egypt. The Cilicians are from Turkey. The idea here is that these opponents are coming from all over the Roman world. This, signif this signifies a few important things for us. One, God has enemies everywhere. So far, God's, enemy, God's enemies have risen up from within Israel. But here we see Israelites, Jews, from all over the known world, also assembling together to dispute against the work of God. You should know this, dear Christian, that the powers of darkness will use anyone's zeal against God's people. There is no, there's no person's zeal that the powers of darkness will not try to incite up and use in order to oppose whatever it is that God is doing. While Hellenists and Hebrews 
might have problems with each other, they can be easily united against the purposes of God. From within Hebrew Judaism and from Hellenistic Judaism, from Gentile religion, religions, there are men and women who are being used by the evil one to oppose God. The religiosity of people does not equate to them being friends of the gospel. You have to think about this. Just because somebody is extremely religious, just like these guys, these, these people are zealous. They are coming from, they're coming from Italy. They're coming from North Africa. They're coming from Turkey. They've come here to worship. They are very zealous people who try to keep the law. But the religiosity of people does not equate them, does not equate being friends of the gospel. Just because somebody looks religious, just because somebody looks kind in certain settings, does not necessarily mean that they are a friend of the gospel. There are many people, even from, what, from within what is called Christianity, whom the evil one has used to oppose the gospel of Jesus Christ. There are many religious people who have an outward kindness and even a generosity that might make us believe that they are friends of Christ, but they are not. You have a responsibility as a maturing Christian to not be duped by what, by what appears good when it is in fact against Christ. Even though something might appear good, you need to test it. You need to ask questions. What do you think of the man Jesus Christ? That answer tells you whether or not this is a friend of God, this is somebody to be supported or no. In John, in his third letter, says, Do not even participate with people who go around claiming to be evangelists, going around from place to place. Don't even support, don't even give them food if they are antichrists, meaning if they teach a doctrine that is against Jesus Christ. You have a responsibility. Colossians chapter 2, verse 8 tells you, See to it that no one takes you captive by philosophy and empty deceit according to human tradition, according to the elemental spirits of the world, and not according to Christ. Do not, do not just, just because you found this person saying wonderful, strong things on YouTube, then just, be, just jump on his train. Be very careful to ensure. The question is, what do you think of Jesus Christ? What do you think? And do you obey the gospel of Jesus Christ? In 2 Thessalonians, we saw this morning at Bible Hour, that in 2 Thessalonians we're told that the, Lord, that the Lord Jesus is coming with vengeance against those who do not obey the gospel of Christ. So don't participate, don't be friends with people that Christ is enemies with. Second, why is it important for us, for Luke, to tell us that these men come from everywhere around the Roman world. Remember, Luke is writing to Theophilus. This is why. Luke is writing to Theophilus at a time in Acts 28, we're told, where Christianity is everywhere spoken against. So Luke is writing this, the book of Acts, to, to, to be delivered to, to Theophilus. And Theophilus knows that everywhere, in Judea, in the Roman world, in North Africa, in Turkey, wherever it is, this gospel is everywhere spoken against. So you are going to go to all these places in the Roman world and you're going to find someone who speaks against Christianity. 
And so that's what Theophilus knows. And that's what Theophilus' group knows. And so Luke wants us to, it is necessary therefore for Theophilus to know what causes Christianity to be spoken ill of everywhere. Here, by his clear writing, Luke shows that the opposition to Christianity is not sensible. It is not even consistent with Old Testament law. He has showed already that the Sadducees and the priests are not, be, are not able to withstand the apostles. And so he's already shown that, hey, if, if you find Sadducees and priests who speak against Christianity, know that when the apostles were there, they couldn't answer them. And now he's going to show us three things that prove that even Hellenistic Jews who might be talking against Christianity throughout the Roman world, that Theophilus might even be aware of, all of those Hellenistic Jews do not have an answer when they are faced with the gospel in front of them. He's going to show us three things here um, that these, all of the Hellenistic Jews do not have a plausible argument. Later on as we continue in the, in the book of Acts, we're going to see Gentiles. And when Gentiles speak against, we're going to see how they also can't answer. So the first thing is that in verse 9 and 10, while Stephen has all of these enemies, they cannot withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he is speaking. You see that in verse 10. They were frustrated because his words were full of winsome wisdom, which they simply couldn't answer. It is very possible that this is after a debate. They might have challenged Stephen to a debate. And it was a public, it was a thing that would have happened in the synagogue where, where people would speak. And here's one now talking, Stephen talking and saying things very strongly in the synagogue. And then they're trying to answer and then they just, the wisdom that he speaks with, they can't answer it. They say one thing, his response throws them off. They say another thing, his response completely throws them off. They have, they have no cogent, sensible answer by which the crowds in Jerusalem may be won over to their side. I want you to see this. This is a battle. Here's Stephen preaching Christ, preaching the gospel of Christ, preaching that Christ is the Messiah. And here are these men trying with all of their might and energy to dispute with him, to try and knock him down a peg in the minds of the people, to try and have gotcha statements, and nothing is coming. It is, it is just Stephen just steamrolling over them, over and over again, over and over again. The people were being won over by his argumentations, and the Spirit was clearly giving him unanswerable grace as he spoke. These men, you see, thought that they were just arguing against Stephen, but in actual fact, they were arguing with the Spirit of God, in whom they are no match. You remember Jesus said in Matthew 12 that the disciples talking to his apostolic group, he said, do not worry when they bring you in front of leaders and authorities, do not worry, I will give you what to say so that you can answer them, so that you can be seen to be in the right. I'll give you what to say. Here's the fulfillment of that. This is the fulfillment. Stephen is speaking by the power of the Spirit and they are, they are not able to answer him. This is a clear evidence for Theophilus that while people in his time oppose Christianity, they really do not have a leg to stand on. This is an important point even for us 2,000 years after Theophilus. The Word of God is full of wisdom insurmountable. I would encourage you, dear Christian, to not fear opponents to the gospel. There are many clever people 
with many clever philosophies and interpretations that could make us cower and even be timid in the face of opposition. And I want to say to you, you have the same gospel, you have the same gospel and a complete word of God that is insurmountable. You have the same gospel. Stephen is not the only one whom they couldn't answer. They couldn't answer the apostles. And they definitely could not answer the Lord Jesus. Do you remember this? It's almost a primary feature of the Lord Jesus' ministry while he was on earth. That he would talk in front of the Jewish leaders and they would have no answer for him. They would come to him to try and test him and try and throw this at him. And the answer that he would give, they would not be able to answer. You remember the case about money. Should we give money to Caesar or not? And he says, who's there? Whose face is there? Give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. You remember when they, they tried to catch him with the, with the whole, okay, well, if, there's a, if heaven really does, if the resurrection does really exist, then what on earth? How, who, and there's a woman who married more than one husband. Whose wife is she going to be in heaven? And Jesus just said, you guys are buffoons. You don't know, the, you, you don't know either the power of God nor the scriptures, do you? You're speaking like this because you don't know what you're even talking about. He always had an answer for them. And so, well, I would encourage you to go to be bold. To, to, to go with the gospel. To stand in the face of attacks with the gospel. Grow in your knowledge of the gospel and all of its parts. Study the word so that you can know how to answer each one. Christians, when, when our answers are weak, the problem is not the gospel or the gospel's consistency. The problem is either our understanding or our application of it. The problem is never with this. The problem is always here. So we need to grow in our knowledge of the gospel so that we can understand how to answer each one because the answers are there. Doesn't mean that the people in front of you are going to like them. Most of the time they don't like them. But the answers are there and they are cogent. They make sense. And for you who are here, if you're here, somebody invited you to church, and you're here and you have many questions regarding Christianity, you have, you have a lot of things that you feel like Christians have never answered you, or whenever you, you try to ask a question about certain things, Christians shut you down, they say you just need to have a faith and close your brain. I'm going to tell you that, I, I'm going to encourage you to come and let's talk. There are answers here. Our standard is the Word of God. That we will engage you. We do not believe that our faith is baseless. Our faith is based on the insurmountable living Word of God that is the solid foundation and is complete. So come with your questions. If there are certain things that you're wondering about, what do we even mean when we say that God is Trinity? And at the same time we say God is one, come, we'll explain it to you. What do we even mean that one man could take the sin of the world on his shoulders so that many people could live and God still remain just? How can that work? Come, come, ask. We will, we will engage you. We, they, they, what is here in this book is wisdom insurmountable. There is no answer that is not here. So come, I would encourage you to come. So, because these men, they, they can't answer him, they, they decide to remove him by means of the courts. 
they decide to bring charges against him in underhanded ways that are obviously unrighteous and are a breaking of the ninth commandment. You see, they, they've tried the first tactic. Let's try, let's, let's oppose him, let's knock him down a peg. Impossible. Okay, now let's do, let's change tactics, let's do something else. And look at what they do in verse 11. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. The first tactic, <coughs> sorry, excuse me. The, this second tactic here is to secretly plant some men to go around among the people saying that Stephen has said blasphemous things about Moses and God and you'll see that this whole thing is really about the temple. That he's, he's, it's about the law of Moses and about the, te- the, the temple worship. And so they, they, they're planting men to go around to say that Moses is, is speaking blasphemously. Mo- not Moses, Stephen is speaking blasphemously against these things that we hold dear. The Jews are very sensitive to any threats regarding their sacred law. You see, you can be a friend of a Jew, but as soon as you start attacking their law and their special place that they have in God's redemptive history, you're going to have problems. They are very sensitive when it comes to the law and they are very sensitive, at least at this time, when it comes to the temple. Anything that is perceived as a threat to the temple raises alarm bells throughout the entire nation. Anyone who says anything dangerous regarding the temple, regarding the law, regarding the system of religion that is among the Jews, that person is, becomes public enemy number one. And so this, ta- this tactic is to remove the esteem of the people from Stephen. Let's plant some men. You see what it says? It says Let's plant some men. Okay, here. So you ten guys... Just go around among the crowds and just say, hey, did you hear what Stephen said? Against the law, against God. I mean, against our whole system of worship. Did you, did you hear? They're going to go around saying that and then everybody's starting to think, what, the Stephen, the one, who just, the one who just healed my brother? Yes, that very same Stephen. Maybe he used magic because he's against the law. He's against the temple. He's against God. They're using, a, they're instigating, trying to get the ire. And so it has its effect. Look at verse 12. They stir up the people. The people are now stirred up. Their people are now riled up. <clears throat> and the elders and the scribes. And they come upon him and seize him and brought him before the council. After word has gone around in the community that Stephen is a blasphemer and speaks against the law, the temple, the entire system of religion, the people are stirred up. And the man is brought before the council. I must take a moment here to digress and talk to you about the people of Jerusalem. These people of Jerusalem are a fickle, flip-floppy bunch. They turn this way and that at a whim. One moment they esteem someone, the next they want his head. They are very easy. These people, they are all passion. They are all anger, and they are not a thoughtful people, it appears, at all. Up till this point, the people loved the apostles, and they were in awe of this group of Christians. They held them in high esteem, even though they didn't join them, as we saw a few weeks ago, but they held them in high esteem. And Stephen is a part of that group. 
But as soon as someone comes and just whispers something in their ear and just says something to the left, they're stirred up and they are willing to, to seize the person and jump at the opportunity to kill him. They did the same thing with the Lord Jesus Christ. Do you remember this? One moment they sang Hosanna and the next they asked for his death even against Pilate's own wishes. And these men, these these men from, from, Europe, from Europe, from Asia, from Africa, these men that have come together to uh, coming against the gospel, coming against Stephen, they rely on the mob nature of the people. We just need to plant 10 people to say a few things. Let's just plant a few people to say a few things. We can get everybody riled up and we'll get rid of Stephen. They rely on the mob nature, that the air of just being quick, to jump and to, and to try to destroy someone. Let me encourage you, dear saints, to not be an emotionally charged, easy to aggravate people like these residents of Jerusalem. Do not be an emotionally charged, very easy to aggravate person like these residents of Jerusalem. Exodus 23 says, which is actually being broken here, says, do not spread false reports. Do not help a guilty person by being a malicious witness. Do not, listen to this, people on social media, listen to this, do not follow the crowd in doing wrong. When you give testimony in a lawsuit, do not pervert justice by siding with the crowd. Just because the comment section is already packed, with one opinion does not mean that you should also jump in. Do not just follow the crowd. As it relates to being easy to make angry, Proverbs chapter 19 verse 1 says this, Good sense, good sense makes one slow to anger and it is, the, it is his glory to overlook an offense. Good sense makes one very slow to get angry. And it is his glory to overlook an offense. Ecclesiastes chapter 7 verse 1 says a similar thing. Do not become quick in your spirit to become angry. For anger lodges in the hearts of fools. That's where anger sits. In the hearts of fools. Let me tell you something. You will be Satan's puppet. You will be Satan's puppet. Easily to manipulate and use if it takes very little to get you all emotional and angry. Satan will use you. If you go from zero to a hundred very quickly, oh man, you're exactly the kind of person Satan wants to use. Be very, you have to be, if, if, if you want to become useful to the kingdom of darkness, live with just a, a residing anger right here. Just always being quick to be irritated. Quick to have your fuse just lit up. If, if you're that kind of person, then you, you are offering up your body and your members in the way that Paul says not to in, in Romans chapter 6. Paul says in Romans 6, do, in Romans 6, do not offer up your members to unrighteousness for ungodly use. Offer up your members to God for righteousness sake. But if you are always just very quick to get angry, very always just, what can offend me today? Who can I fight with today? 
Oh, here's my, here's my family member. What are they going to say today that's going to ire me? Oh, you're going to talk about this issue? Okay, let me get ready to just go ahead and blow up. You're going to be used by... Satan's going to move you this way and that. He's just going to use you this way and that. Let's light a fuse here. Let's light a fuse there. And then here you go. And you will cause damage. You will cause damage in your relationships. You will cause damage in your community, among your people. You will cause damage. It is a glory of, it is a glory of a person to calm themselves down. Just calm down. Just overlook an offense. Relax. Drink some water. I can offer you some. Okay. Just, just relax. Consider issues. Hear the matter out in its entirety. And deal with it in a balanced fashion. There's no need to be angry about all 90% of the things that we get at. There is righteous anger. And that has a time. And it has a purpose. But of all the things that we get angry about and get we jump at. Things in the metaverse. <laughs> there have been numerous research articles trying to capture the scale of how angry people have become over the last few years. Every survey notes a sharp rise in anger and, spe- and especially in irritability. And some of the key findings show that people are almost just living at the edge, almost always ready to be enraged by something. It is not a stretch to use the, a coin termed by a University of California researcher that we are living today in a constant anger incubator. Our, our environment is just a place that is just you, growing anger, growing irritability, growing short fuses, growing fits of rage. We, however, as God's people, dear saints, we are called to something better. By the blood of Jesus Christ that has, that has sanctified us and made us holy and brought us to God, we are called to something far better. We are called to resist the spirit of our age and not have short fuses. We are called to be a people who are kind. People who live in light of the nine fruits of the spirit. Love, peace, patience, joy, kindness, self-control, gentleness, goodness. And Paul says against such things there is no no. That's what we are called to. We are called to be people who are not like the spirit of our age. Of course we will get angry when we have to at the right things for the right amount of time and no further. But in general, we are to be those who show forth the fruits of the spirit. So let me encourage you in that direction, dear saints. A short fuse is a sign of immaturity. It is not a sign of moral character. If you have a short fuse, you are immature. You are not where Christ would have you to be. Let me encourage you towards what Christ calls us to. Well, let's move on in our text now as we come to a close. Well, after instigating the people's anger, they've, they've riled up the people, they've riled up the scribes, they've riled up the elders, and then they've, brought, they've, they've, they've grabbed Stephen and they've, they've jumped on him, they've brought him in front of the council. This is what they do next. They set up false witnesses. Look at verse 13. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place, the temple, and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place, the temple, 
and change the customs that Moses delivered to us. Have you, uh, have you ever met someone who lies by exaggerating the truth? You ever met someone like that? Who lies by exaggerating the truth? They, they take the truth and then they just pad it to such a degree that what is delivered to other people is no longer the truth. Let's say, or, or they take the truth and they alter just a slight, slight thing, small thing, but then it's got enough truth around it that people can believe it, but it's now become an entire lie because it is no longer the truth in its, in its clarity. That's what's happening here. These men are not entirely fabricating this. Jesus did speak of the temple's destruction. And the the implications of the gospel do mean that the customs of Moses are obsolete. But if you remember, Jesus spoke of the temple's destruction as a prediction. You remember this? He spoke of the temple's destruction as a prediction. But what are they saying? Jesus himself will destroy the temple. A prophecy, not that he himself, he will do it. He prophesied this in Mark chapter 13, verse 2. He said that there will be no stone left on another. But remember also when Jesus himself was on trial. Do you remember one of the charges against him? They said this in Mark chapter 14. They said, he said, I will destroy this temple. Again, there, were, there was false witness even there because Jesus never said that. You will not find that anywhere in the Gospels. In John chapter 2, verse 19, the Lord Jesus says, Destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And John then explains to us that the Lord Jesus is referring to the temple of his body. These false witnesses are continuing the evil work done by the false witnesses against the Lord Jesus at his trial. They're doing exactly the same thing. They're taking the truth. You can imagine Stephen saying, just reiterating what Jesus has said. And here they are taking it and twisting it to make it seem more, to make it seem as if this, this man and this group of people are out to destroy the temple and to destroy everything that Moses has built. Here's the summary. Here's the summary of everything. We are not told exactly what Stephen had said. But Stephen, unlike the apostles, unlike the apostles, seems to have been speaking more boldly regarding the future of the Mosaic law. So far, no charge like this has come forward because the apostles have not been talking about the future of the Mosaic law. They've just been talking about Christ. They've been faithfully preaching Christ. But since Christ, Stephen is the first who appears to take the gospel to its logical conclusions. And the logical conclusion at the completion of the earthly ministry of Jesus is this. Here's the logical conclusion. If you take everything that Jesus did his arrival, his ministry, his death, his resurrection, his ascension, his, his heavenly session right now, ministering in heaven. If you take all of that and put together, here's the logical conclusion. God's religion is no longer centered around the temple. God's religion, the religion that comes from Yahweh, is no longer centered around the temple. And because one greater than Moses has arrived, the customs of Moses will change. There is one, a lawgiver, higher, better, superior to Moses that has arrived. 
And so the customs of Moses will have to change. Jesus did this. He said this. He he implied this often. In Mark, we are told that Christ Christ marked marked every food clean. So when your your friends come to you and say, Oh, you, 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 you believe this part of the Bible, but do you eat pork while you're eating your bacon? You tell them, I eat pork because Jesus in Mark marked pork clean. Oh, 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 oh you, 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 do you eat shellfish? You eat prawns? Ah, of course you're eating prawns. Because Jesus marked every food clean, which means he's, he's updating the Mosaic law. He's, 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 re, he's, he's fulfilling it. But some of the ceremonial customs, he's making them obsolete because he has arrived. The curtain of the temple, you remember when Jesus died, what happened to the curtain of the temple? What happened? It was torn. Yeah? Meaning that the temple is now, I mean, it's there, but the presence of the Lord is now among God's people. The reality, the the, the coming of Christ and the work of Christ surpasses Moses' work in its excellence. The reality, the biggest reality, is that while Jews have the history of the living God, God is now calling the masses of Gentiles. And if he is calling the masses of Gentiles to himself, then Jerusalem is no longer the exclusive place where Yahweh is found. Take this one last lesson, dear beloved, as we come to an end. Ephesians chapter 2, verse 19 and following says this. Now therefore, you are no longer strangers and foreigners, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God, having been built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, Jesus Christ himself being the chief cornerstone, in whom the whole building being fit together grows into a holy temple in the Lord, in whom you are also being built together for a dwelling place of God, the Spirit. The people of God, you, the people of God are now the temple. You now are the temple. You are now where God lives. You remember, the Spirit of God has now been poured out. You are now where God lives. We are the place that now is to be kept holy. The Jews were right in one sense to keep the physical structure holy, to make sure that nothing unclean comes near it. They were right because it was, that's what God had said. But now that same zeal to keep the temple clean, to protect the temple against all enemies, all that energy now comes to you and me. It's now us. We are the temple that must be kept holy. We are the ones who are not to unite our bodies with a prostitute, like Paul says. We are the ones who are to make sure that what comes out of our mouths is befitting the holiness of God, because God lives here. We are the ones who are told to not quench the Spirit because the Spirit lives with us. The energy, the zeal, if you could just try and capture it in a bottle, the energy that, the, that, 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 that they had for the temple, take it, multiply it by a hundred and apply it to yourself. Make no unclean thing come from your mouth. Do not, do not touch and be associated with any unclean thing. Treat this place, you're among us, not really the building. It's not the building, it's us. The, 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 the body of Christ. Keep us here holy. Keep this place clean 
of, of rampant and ongoing sin. We need to be a people who are a people of God, who take seriously that the Spirit of God has come to us. And we need to do that in thanks, in thanksgiving, because God, by His mercy and grace, by His manifold mercy and grace, has seen it fit to take unclean people, unclean vessels like us, and make them vessels that He will live in. What a great mercy to us. What a great and wonderful and bountiful mercy from God that we can be said to be the temple where God lives, the one who made Israel, the one who made everything. He lives here among us and in us. And I'm going to encourage you as well, if, you, if you're, this is foreign to you, you're outside, you feel yourself an outsider to Christianity, let me say that this Jesus, this same Jesus who is building up this temple of the church, in calls everyone with all of their faith, filth, with all of their sins, with all of their weaknesses, he calls all of them to come and he himself will clean them. No matter what it is, how deep you are in your sin, Christ can clean you, wash you, make you clean, and he will unite you with his body, unite you primarily with himself. So let us leave with that in mind, and as now, as even now, as we, we turn to the table, and as we think about the implications of the table, we think about the body of Christ, which is the, the temple. The body of Christ pierced for us, destroyed for us. The blood of Christ gushed out for us in making a covenant with us so that we might always proclaim His coming, so that we might be His people and be united with Him forever. Oh, dear saints, if there's anything that you need to cheer yourself up with, if perhaps you're feeling low, if there's anything that, that, that you should strive to make sure affects you and affects you in the right way, it is this reality. God now lives in you. God lives in you. If that is not affecting you in the way that it is, then perhaps go read the Old Testament. Go see how big a deal and how clean and, and spotless everything has to be for God to even come in and come by it. Let alone live in it. What a wonderful grace. What a wonderful thing that God has chosen me with all my sin. He has cleansed me and made us a vessel for His life, for, for Him to live in. May the Lord bless us. May the Lord keep us holy. Let's pray. We are your temple, Lord Jesus. Uh, may you be pleased with the aroma that comes from here. We are so thankful to you that you have made, for, made it possible for us to come to you. You have died. You shed your own body. Your own blood was shed. Your own body was pierced. So that we can be your temple. We praise you, Lord, for this. And we ask that in your mercy and grace, that you would keep us holy. And even now, as we come to the table, we pray that you would strengthen us, work in us, take these elements, these common elements, and, and set them apart. Strengthen, use them to strengthen us in our walk, in our weaknesses, as we fall again and again into sin. We pray that you would help us, Lord. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.